<laughs> All the kids dismissed. It's November, if you can believe it. I hope you enjoyed that extra hour of sleep last night. I said that to uh, someone coming in the church this morning, and she said, you mean the extra hour of kids waking up an hour early? You might need to turn that down a little bit, Matt. But we'll try and be sensitive to the fact that everyone's stomach has not yet adjusted, and we'll uh, get you out of here in time for uh, the stomachs that have not yet adjusted. As we go through this morning, the Acts of the Apostles, we've been on what has now become an 11-month journey so far through this book of the Acts. And for anyone who was not here, last week we saw God's providential protection on the life and particularly on the calling of the Apostle Paul during an intense 12-day period as he was first beaten by an angry mob and then assaulted before a Jewish council of elders before being interrogated and locked in a Roman prison. The Romans had him strapped down and were ready to stretch him out and interrogate him. That's how they did that. So only to become the victim of a conspiracy to kill him after this. So it's been quite a couple of weeks for the Apostle Paul. And amazingly, we saw that despite the circumstances, the plot that was evolving to take his life, though it was unknown to Paul, was known to God. Just as the plans of the enemy against you and against me, whether we know about it or not, or are keenly aware, those plans are known to God as well. And because of that, you don't have to worry about them. You don't have to worry about World War III. You don't have to worry about the person who's scheming against you at your workplace or trying to undermine you. You don't have to worry because these plans are known to God. And the Lord told Paul to take courage. Take courage because he had a job for him to do, just as he has a job for you to do. Luke told the story of how God delivered Paul from these plans of the enemy that were against him in the same way that God can deliver you from the plans of the enemy against you. Do you believe that this morning? Do we believe this? Do we believe that the Lord is with us? Do we believe that he knows, that he's omniscient, that I don't have to worry about the unknown things? I don't have to worry about tomorrow. If indeed we are as Paul fighting for and witnessing to the cause of Christ. And God took Paul from the prison to the palace, and that didn't mean that everything went his way or that the persecution stopped, as we're going to see this morning. But what it did mean, however, is that God was with him in his challenges, and Paul was not abandoned to the circumstances, and neither are you. Amen? God was sovereignly protecting Paul, and he had all the people and the resources properly positioned for Paul's protection, just as he does for you and me if we are witnessing for the cause of Christ and the kingdom, and I pray that's so in our lives, amen? And that brings us to this morning in Acts 24, in which we'll see there's no time like the present. Psalm 95, uh, the book of Hebrews, 2 Corinthians 6, they all say it this way, today, if you will hear his voice, behold, now... Now is the acceptable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. Today is. You can't do anything for God yesterday. You can't do anything for God tomorrow. 
All you have and all I have, all anyone ever has is today. And if we're indeed witnessing for the cause of Christ and the kingdom of God, and and if today's our only day, if today's the day that we get the chance to do it, to respond to that call and to give that call to others, then the question becomes, do we deliver our witness with any sense of urgency? Do our conversations, do our lives, does our witness about Jesus Christ in any way, shape, or form invoke the fear of God in the lives of those who see and hear us. Because that's precisely what happens here this morning in Acts 24 with Paul's witness to this guy, Felix. God is indeed patient. Aren't you thankful for God's patience? And don't mistake his patience for slackness, Peter warns. It's in fact his patience, his kindness, his faithful love, his long-suffering, his unwillingness that any should perish all of this leads us to repentance god desires that all should come to him in repentance or as paul says to the romans it's the kindness of god that leads to repentance but it should lead to repentance and it should lead to repentance right now today and just as paul knew that god's grace and his patience and his kindness all lead to us turning from our own way to his way, Paul also knew equally well that today is the only day that we have. No wonder he would say to the Ephesians, make the most of every opportunity with respect to urging others towards the kingdom. Don't miss a chance. Yes, God is patient. Yes, God is kind. And yes, now is your chance Do we represent the cause of Christ urgently as we ought to? And does our witness compel others to choose one way or the other? Whether they do or not, that's another story. It's really not my responsibility nearly so much as it is to present this cause of Christ to anyone and to everyone today. Jesus witnessed and spoke of the kingdom with a sense of urgency. You always knew where you stood with Jesus. You might not always understand to your satisfaction exactly what he was saying in that moment, but through the power of the Holy Spirit, he could give us understanding and bring it back to those disciples, and eventually they understood, but today is the the day that we get to hear from Christ. Are we hearing, and did we see that he came with a sense of urgency? He said, today I must dine at your house, right? And Paul also witnessed with a sense of urgency, even from the jailhouse or in the courtroom, as we'll see this morning. And the question for us today is, do we, do we offer the kingdom truth in earnest and urgently? Do I preach with any sense of urgency? I was plagued with this question all week. Because the fact that Jesus and Peter and Paul and James did it brought people to a decision one way or the other they either embraced or rejected as is the case sometimes they would try to put it off to another day as felix does here we'll see but they couldn't do nothing about the urgent witness that was in front of them they had to make a decision either to accept reject or try to pawn it off but this guy felix gets frightened by the words that he's hearing do the words that we share and the lives that we lead invoke anyone to be concerned about the future that they may 
they will stand before a God who's holy. Is that the sort of witness we bring to others? And if it's not, then why not? What am I missing? What are we missing in our sharing, in our lives, or our preaching? Is it because we're not urgent in our own response to the Lord? And if I'm not urgent in my own response, how am I going to inspire or encourage someone else to be urgent in theirs? Lord, help us. Help me today, Father. Because this is not a game or a culture club that we join in on Sundays for an hour or two. This walk of faith. And the time is short. Everything in Scripture speaks in those terms. Or do we not believe that an end and a final judgment and a new beginning are all in motion and we're moving toward that? Do we believe that or not? Felix, the governor before whom Paul stands, accused here in Acts 24, Felix was a selfish, callous, and worldly man by all accounts, and we'll look at that historically, but he became quite literally frightened when Paul discussed things like righteousness and self-control and the judgment to come. This man of the world who didn't care about anybody or anything, it seemed, but his own uh, his own comfort and his own pleasure all of a sudden got frightened when he heard Paul urgently witnessing to him. Does our witness inspire anyone to become appropriately, appropriately concerned at the thought of these things? And all this is taking place against the backdrop of a courtroom drama that unfolds. There's a, an ace lawyer that comes in to stand before Felix, the judge who's presiding, and Paul witnesses in public before he witnesses in private while he offers Felix every opportunity to receive Christ, let's see what we can discover here as we read from Acts 24, starting in verse 1. Five days after the high priest Ananias came down with some elders and an attorney named Tertullus, and they brought charges to the governor against Paul. After Paul had been summoned, Tertullus began to accuse him, saying to the governor, since we have through you attained much peace and since by your providence reforms are being carried out for this nation we acknowledge this in every way and everywhere most excellent Felix with all thankfulness but that I may not weary you any further I beg you to grant us by your kindness a brief hearing for we found this man a real pest and a fellow who stirs up dissension among all the Jews throughout the world. He's a ringleader of the sect of the Nazarenes. He even tried to desecrate the temple. Then we arrested him. We wanted to judge him according to our own law, but Lucius, the commander, came along and with much violence took him out of our hands, ordering his accusers to come before you. By examining him yourself concerning these matters, you'll be able to ascertain the things of which we accuse him. You'll see, governor. The Jews also joined in the attack, asserting that these things were so. And when the governor had nodded for him to speak, Paul responded in this way. Knowing that for many years you've been a judge to this nation, I cheerfully make my defense. Since you can take note of the fact that no more than 12 days ago I went up to Jerusalem to worship. Neither in the temple nor in the synagogues nor in the city itself did they find me carrying on a discussion with anyone or causing a riot, nor can they prove to you the charges of which they now accuse me. 
But this I admit to you, that according to the way, this way of following Christ, which they call a sect, I do serve the God of our fathers, believing everything that's in accordance with the law and all that's written in the prophets, having hope in God, which these men cherish themselves, that there shall certainly be a resurrection of both the righteous and the wicked. In view of this, I also do my best to maintain always a blameless conscience both before God and before men. Now, after several years, I came to bring alms to my nation and to present offerings in which they found me occupied in the temple, having been purified without any crowd or uproar. But there were some Jews from Asia who ought to have been present before you today to make this accusation if they should have anything against me. Or else let these men themselves tell what misdeed they found when I stood before the council, other than for this one statement which I shouted while standing among them, for the resurrection of the dead, I'm on trial before you today. But Felix, having a more exact knowledge about the way, put them off, saying, when Lucius, the commander, comes down, I'll decide your case. Then he gave orders to the centurion for him to be kept in custody and yet have some freedom and not to prevent any of his friends from ministering to him. But some days later, Felix arrived with Drusilla, his wife, who was a Jewess. And they sent for Paul and heard him speak about faith in Christ Jesus. But as he was discussing righteousness, self-control, and the judgment to come, Felix became frightened and said, Go away for the present time. I'll, I'll find time, and when I do, I'll summon you. At the same time, too, he was hoping that money would be given him by Paul. Therefore, he used to send for him quite often and converse with him. But after two years had passed, Felix was succeeded by Portius Festus, and wishing to do the Jews a favor, Felix left Paul imprisoned. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you once again for your word to us today. And your word in us today Thank you for your son, the word of God to man. Thank you for the life that we can know and we can experience through the power of your Holy Spirit today. Teach us, Lord, we pray, everything that you want us to know. Empower us to become all that you would have us become through your word, through your spirit. Give us this day our daily bread, we pray, as Christ taught us to pray, in whose name we pray, amen and amen. Right here at the outset, as this experienced lawyer, Tertullus, begins to make his case, we get some insight into both his name and his approach. His name means triple-hardened, Tertullus, like a turtle, right? Like a turtle shell, like tertiary rock. It's actually the same root word is what it means. He's a hard man. He's a skilled lawyer who has uh, a hardened heart, and here's his hardened approach. It's one of flattering oratory, above and beyond the normal pleasantries. Did you notice that with his opening remarks before the court? Verse 2, Through you, great Felix, we've attained peace. By your providence, reforms are being carried out every way and everywhere. Most excellent Felix with all thankfulness. You can just sense the sort of like snake oil that he's selling here to the governor. You're the best governor. You, you, you. 
Mwah, mwah. It's so good to be under the thumb of the Romans. Isn't this wonderful? So much better than the freedom we used to have. We're so thankful, governor. We don't want to take up too much of your time. Just give us the ruling that we want and we'll, we'll let it go from there. And then come the accusations that he's bringing against Paul, verse 5. This man is a real pest. He stirs up dissension. He's a ringleader of the Nazarenes. You can see, first of all, that it's pretty vague. Can you imagine someone bringing charges in a court today? This guy's a real pest, Your Honor. He's a real hassle to me. He's like people are arguing and whatnot. Although today someone might bring that up. <laughs> they said something, right? They said something they, that I didn't like or didn't appreciate, so maybe it's not that far off. But you can see it's not something that's unlawful according to their laws. And he's associated with the Nazarenes. He's trying to, like, uh, speak against... I mean, nothing good can come from Nazareth, right? We all know that. And secondly, he's offering no proof whatsoever. There aren't any witnesses that he's calling. There's no cause to arrest him. He says, we arrested him, but there was no cause for arresting him. He says that your commander, Lucius, came down and with much violence took him from us, yet he left out the fact that they had beaten him so badly that the Romans came to rescue Paul from them. And this is the enemy's strategy, flattery and half-truths, omitting details that are important, manufacturing others all with, without a single witness to the supposed crime. The Hebrew, Hebrew council had a slick lawyer, but they had no case. That didn't stop them from chiming in, Luke says in verse 9, the Jews also joined in the attack. But how would Paul choose to respond to them in this moment? Would he immediately get defensive? Or would he be satisfied with simply trying to justify his own actions over the past 12 days? Not that he had done anything wrong at all. Or in spite of all that, would he take advantage and make the most of the opportunity that he has here when the spotlight is on him? What does Paul do when the attention is on him? And what do we do when the attention is on us? In verses 10 to 16, we see Paul witnessing on at least five specific counts in the public place of the courtroom. He's being charged with several counts, and he could have just defended himself and uh, made the, that the main thing here, but he doesn't do that. Instead of defending himself or defending the, the counts one by one, it's as if he's more concerned with sharing his faith than he is with making his defense. Did you notice that? In verse 10, I cheerfully make my defense. In verse 11, I went up to Jerusalem to worship. Verse 14, according to the way, this way of following Jesus, I do serve the God of our fathers. In verse 15, I have hope in God for a resurrection of both the righteous and the wicked mind you in verse 16 I do my best to maintain a blameless conscience before God first and for and foremost here's how Paul responded to the charges against him and let's think about that for just a minute do we make a cheerful defense of our lives and our gospel do we make a cheerful defense of this way in which we walk? Or do we make an angry defense of our lives and our gospel? 
Or worse yet, are we just concerned with defending ourselves primarily in conflicts or in the culture war? Are we so preoccupied with that that we fail to witness for the cause of Christ at all? It sounds crazy, but it's easy to do just to get defensive about ourselves and our way of life. But do we do it cheerfully, as Paul says here? And are we unashamed in our worship as Paul appears to be here? He makes the point, number two, that this is what his life is about. This is why he went up to Jerusalem. I went up there to worship, to bring this offering to the Lord. When the attention is on us in the home or in the workplace or in the courtroom, do we similarly and boldly proclaim to anyone and everyone that our why in life is to worship the Lord Jesus Christ? Is that, is that just off-putting or we're afraid someone uh, won't respond to that or be put off by that in some way? Or do we just kind of omit that detail? Or worse yet, is it not really the why of our lives? Paul doesn't just testify to his own defense. He's testifying to the cause of Christ here. And he says, according to that way that he serves God, I do serve the God of our fathers. Are we urgent in our service? Listen, it's easy to be urgent when I'm in need. We're urgent in our prayers. Lord, save me, save me, save me. Lord, help me, help me with this. Lord, would you just please, I'm just hanging on by a thread. Boy, those prayers are urgent. We're urgent in our receiving. Are we just as urgent in our giving, in our offering, in our worship to God, in our service to God? Am I just as urgent in those things as I am in the others? And I love that Paul attests to the the hope that he has in God, particularly for resurrection. Do you have the hope of resurrection today? If you have the hope of resurrection, your life should be different. Christian believers should be the most hope-filled people on the planet. Or do we just get caught up in all of the craziness of life and get distracted and become depressed or upset about it? Like, do we just rage at what's going on in this culture and it's going crazy? Or are we coming with the hope of Jesus Christ? What do my conversations look like? Are they forlorn and, and just worried and constantly concerned about, oh, can you believe what happened now? Can you believe what's happening in the news? Or am I saying, there's hope in Christ. As believers, we should have that. I have hope in God. If it's left up to me and what's going on down here and the craziness in the world, man, that's hopeless. And apart from Christ, there is no hope and you're the one to bring it do we bring it with a sense of urgency are we living in light of this resurrection that we're expecting it doesn't end here as followers of jesus we ought to be we ought to be the most hope-filled people on the planet because we are and guess what now's the time to do it Number five, Paul prioritizes a clean conscience before God first and foremost and before men. But God is first in order and importance there. Do we maintain a clean conscience before God? Do we do our best? He said, I'm doing my best knowing that he's flawed, knowing that he's fallen, knowing that there's only one who's good. He said, I'm trying. You know, this one thing I do, I press on. I'm trying here, doing my best to maintain a clean conscience before God and before man. 
I think sometimes we get in our, our, our prayer closet or our private time with God and we have this clean conscience, but then we disregard others. It doesn't work that way. He says before God and before man, God is primary. But listen, you've got to live. I've got to, I've got to live with, with my wife and with uh, people, with all of you, right? And with people that I work with. We've all got to have a clean conscience, not only before God, but in those intimate relationships with people who know us best or in these adversarial interactions that we have with others. And Paul's saying, I'm trying to do my best here. Lord, keep us from a tertiary heart. From a hardened heart, Lord, let me not become callous. It's easy to drift. It's easy to be distracted in this culture. And, and Jesus warned the disciples, in the last days, the love of many will wax cold. It'll grow cold. Lord, don't let my heart and my love and my commitment grow cold so that my conscience is not clean before God and man. Help me to do my best to maintain it. And as part of that clean conscience before God and men, Paul makes his defense after sharing all these truths about the cause of Christ. But he does make his defense. He said, I came to bring an offering. I entered the temple purely and lawfully. I made no uproar, although another group of people did. And if they have any accusations against me, they should be here to testify, but they aren't. The reason I'm standing here before you today, verse 21, is for the resurrection of the dead. I'm on trial before you today. And on that count, I'm guilty as charged. I'm guilty as charged. This is why I'm here. I'm standing up for the resurrection. I do believe in resurrection, not just of the righteous to eternal life, but of the wicked as well to eternal judgment. If you want to charge me with believing in the resurrection, I plead guilty. And apparently Felix is no complete stranger to the way. Luke says that he had exact knowledge, in fact, more exact knowledge, and he understood the Hebrews as well, being that his wife was Jewish. Think of the position he's in. Don't you know that all of these factors uh, had something to do with his decision that he would eventually render but at first, he tables any ruling. In verse 22, when Lucius, the commander, comes down, I'll decide your case. Then he gave orders for him to be kept in custody, yet to have some freedom and not to prevent any of his friends from ministering to him while he was there. Can you see how God is caring for Paul in the middle of this thing, preserving him to be a witness to the cause of Christ, not only here, but in the next phase in these Last few chapters, the next phase of this epic journey, he's in custody for the moment, but he has freedom. And he has friends, and those are good things to have. Despite this guy, Felix, who was quite a character, as I begin to read some of the historical accounts, this most noble Felix, as the lawyer called him, he rose in status, first gaining freedom. He was a slave. He was a slave, this governor, Felix. He became what many historians believe to be the first former slave to become governor of a Roman province. How's that? And some historians describe him as a master of cruelty and lust who exercised the powers of a king with the spirit of a slave. Trading on the influence of his infamous brother Pallas, who was also a favorite of the emperor Claudius. They believe that's how he had this. He was connected politically and his brother helped him to advance. 
And the Roman historian Tacitus said he indulged in every license and excess, thinking he could do any evil act with impunity. That's a direct quote. So you can see how unlikely it would have been for him to show kindness to a prisoner. You can see how amazing this is that God has Paul in the palm of his hand, preserving him for his purpose, protecting him. And as for the flattery of Tertullus, the lawyer, you can see what a joke it was for him to say all the things that he said in light of who they all knew Felix to be. And after making the most of his opportunity with the public place, Paul seeks to make the most of his opportunity in the private place. Felix and his Jewish wife sent for Paul. And what did they hear when Paul spoke to them? Verse 24, they heard him speak about his faith in Christ Jesus. Paul wasn't lobbying the judge or pleading his own case. He wasn't trying to escape prison. He was advocating for the cause of Christ, first in public, now in private. And he wasn't being shy about it either. He was making it plain, just as we all should. Verse 25 says, As he was discussing righteousness, self-control, and the judgment to come, Felix became frightened. And he said, Go away for the present. We'll talk about it another time. You're scaring me, Paul. And Felix the fearful missed his day. That was his day, and he missed his hour of visitation. Does our witness for Christ put the fear of God into anyone? And I don't mean that we should all turn into hellfire preachers every minute of every day but I don't think we should water down the eternal realities that every person is going to face. Paul says it straight up, both the righteous and the wicked will stand before God. There's a resurrection, and that is hope for the righteous and fear for the wicked. And it's okay to say that. In fact, it's not okay to keep silent about it. The thought of having to stand before God and account for the life he had led frightened Felix just as it should. Just as it should every person except the one who is perfectly loved by a perfect heavenly father because perfect love casts out all fear that has to do with judgment, the apostle John would say. But only after you experience the upsetting aspect of our sin before a holy God, can you begin to fathom the depth of the love that is God? And if in the name of mercy or however you want to frame it or courtesy we would spare someone the knowledge of the reality that our lives apart from God will present to us one day, if we spare ourselves or others from that, we're sparing ourselves and others from experiencing and knowing the deep and earnest, abiding, massive height, depth, and width of the love of God. Only when we understand 
what it is to be apart from him and to say no to that love, can we understand what a great love it is, in fact, for us and for all of humanity, indeed for creation? Does our witness even include things like righteousness and self-control and the judgment to come? And if not, why is that? Why is that? Because it needs to. Felix would go on to toy with Paul in the months that followed, wanting to please the Jews and please his Jewish wife. He kept Paul under house arrest for two more years. He found time to hear him again, trying to extort money from him. Historians believe that he eventually succumbed to tuberculosis. But the important reality of the life of Felix the Fearful is that he appeared to have completely missed his opportunity to embrace Christ. But not because someone didn't witness to him and expose him to the realities of an earthly life lived apart from Christ. And my prayer is that my witness and your witness to the reality and the cause of the kingdom of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ would be administered with some sense of urgency. The urgency that we see here throughout the scripture from Paul, from Peter, from Christ himself, today is the day to both heed the call and if we're witnesses who've responded to that call, to urgently give that call to others in a way that makes plain, as the scripture says, the kindness and the severity of God. Today's the day. And I pray that we'll do both of those. Father, in Jesus' name, thank you for your word to us. Thank you for this story that you've preserved. And now 2,000 years later, Lord, we hear your voice calling us. We hear the witness, Lord, of your plan coming to fruition, how you are authoring and finishing our faith, how you protected this man's life for the purpose of your witness. Father, it wasn't an easy road, but what road is there? Lord, that's easy, but that we could experience, in spite of the challenges, the peace of God in the middle that surpasses all understanding, even on a road that's difficult. Father, I pray that each person in this room would respond to your call, the urgent call that today is the chance to respond to your kindness, Lord, by turning to you. And for each person who has, Lord, that today is the day to give that call to someone else. Lord, we don't know. We're like Paul. We're trying to do our best, Lord, to have a clean conscience before you. Lord, help us. Help us in that. And Lord, if we need to use words, let us stand up with words, but mostly let our lives, Lord, I pray in Jesus' name, may our lives bear witness to the reality of the kindness of of God and the holiness of God. Thank you that there is life. There is hope. Father, I pray that through the power of your Spirit, you would fill each person who's encouraged to be a witness for you. You would fill them with hope such that as soon as they see the darkness in the world around them, they'd say, wait, I've got hope for you in this moment. Wait, I'm not without hope here in this. Christ in me, the hope of glory to be experienced here and to be experienced in the life to come. Thank you, Father, for your plan, for the witness of your word here and the witness of your spirit in us. 
for the sake of your kingdom, for the sake of your glory, and for our good. In Jesus' name, we pray. Amen and amen. Amen. If you would stand as we're dismissed from Romans 13. Brothers and sisters, doing this, knowing the time, that now is the high time. It's high time to awake from sleep, for now our salvation is nearer than when we first believed. The night is far spent. The day is at hand. Therefore, let us cast off the works of darkness and let us put on the armor of light. And he finishes that chapter by saying, clothe yourselves with the Lord Jesus Christ. And I pray you would clothe yourselves with the Lord Jesus Christ. Let us put on the armor of light. Today is the day. Amen. Amen. The Lord bless you on your journey. As always, we are here to pray with anyone who wants to pray. Today is your day. Make the most of every opportunity. Amen. God bless you.